Hey, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. Um, this past week, I was talking with my wife, Rebecca, and I said, could you just look over what I'm thinking about saying? Because I usually ask her for some feedback, and she usually gives it. And, um, and she said, well, it's good. She goes, but you, you need a joke to start with. You always, you always kind of tell a joke. And I said, well, I don't really have a John the Baptist joke. And so I was telling Chuck this, and uh, so Chuck said, oh, I have one. <laughs> You're not surprised, are you? He, he said, so what does John the Baptist and Smokey the Bear have in common? I said, I don't know. He said, they have the same middle name, the Bear, the Baptist. <laughs> so as you can see, I still don't have a joke. <laughs> but I do have a few things that I want to say about John the Baptist. So if you want to turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 11, or if you have your journal with you, that's where we are uh, this week. The last time we saw John the Baptist, he was baptizing Jesus. He was going around preaching and calling people to repentance. We remember that famous scene when Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove, and the voice said, this is my son whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. So John the Baptist had a front row seat to one of the pivotal moments in the life of Christ. He truly had a unique perspective. But now we find John in a very different circumstance. We find John in prison. John is in prison because of someone named Herod Antipas. So we all remember Herod the Great from the Christmas narrative. Well, this is one of his sons. And he had married, he was married, he got a divorce. Uh, then he married his half-brother's wife, Herodias, who scholars believe was also his niece. This sounds like something you would binge watch on Netflix, right? And as John the Baptist was going around teaching and preaching, he was kind of calling out Herod for this. And as it happened, he got arrested. Now, we will see this Herod again in a few weeks in the Easter narrative. You know, when Jesus is arrested, Pilate originally sends him to him because Jesus was doing his ministry in Galilee. And then Herod sends him back to Pilate. So here we find John, the one who leapt in his mother's womb when he heard Mary's voice, uh, the one who had baptized Jesus, the one who had seen the Spirit fall upon him, and we find him in prison. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word to his, by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? 
Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he in whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. It seems that John's whole life has been a witness to Jesus, but now it seems like he is having some doubts. I can imagine that those doubts were fed by the reality that things aren't quite going as he had, he had expected. You have a different perspective where he's sitting in chapter 11. Have you ever wavered? Have you ever had any doubts about your faith? I think doubts are a natural part of the life of faith because faith, it's not certitude. Faith is following Jesus when you don't fully comprehend every detail. I think too often churches squash people's doubts. I have heard people express their doubts and people say, well, you just need to have more faith, as if it's something you can accomplish by just trying a little bit harder, that you can just turn off your mind and your emotions. That kind of faith, that kind of a faith that's afraid to explore our doubts is the kind of faith that can be a little bit stunted, the kind of faith that never really grows because our doubts don't really go away just because we ignore them. They go away when we grow into a deeper relationship with God. Tim Keller puts it like this, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blindly go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has fallen over, failing over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. That's sometimes what happens to students when they go to college. It's the first time that they've the, the faith of their childhood has ever been confronted by a smart skeptic. Maybe it's a professor who's, you know, well-versed in science or philosophy, and he knows just enough about the Bible to poke holes at it. I liken it to a game of Jenga. I'm sure you've played Jenga. You know how Jenga works. You build it up, and then you see how many blocks you can pull out before it crumbles. When I hear these spiritual Jenga stories, it's sometimes frustrating because I find that the thing that has caused someone's faith to collapse is an issue that the church has dealt with over the centuries and Christians have discussed and figured out and reconciled. But the problem is the student never had anyone to work with them, to talk with them, to discuss it, to help them understand it. And so they push God away. But doubts should never cause us to push God away. 
Because doubt is an invitation to a deeper journey. Our doubts are an invitation to seek after God because Jesus has no fear of being disproven. If you have doubts, you're in good company. The Bible is full of doubters. John, Thomas, Nicodemus, Peter, and on and on. And in my experience, doubts revolve around two primary questions. How and why? For many of us, our doubts are mostly about intellectual questions of how. How does the kingdom of God work? How does this theological concept operate? How do we reconcile science and faith? As John sat in a cell in the fortress of Macarus in the scorching hot mountains of the Dead Sea, I think that's what he was wondering is how does this kingdom of God work? Because it's not working as I expected. John's expectation was, after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John's expectation was that when Jesus' kingdom comes, it will come with power and fire, and people like Herod will be no more. And honestly, that's the kind of kingdom that we want as well. We want a kingdom of power and fire that will fix the things that are broken in this world, in our life. And when the kingdom doesn't work out as we expected, we're frustrated, we're confused, and we can have our doubts. One of the fascinating things to me about the kingdom of God is it's so simple that it can be explained to a little child, but it's so complex that we can spend our entire life comprehending it. One of your first disappointments in seminary is when you come to the realization that all of your complicated questions don't have simple answers. I can remember in my first year, I was in a systematic theology class, and it was one of those classrooms where the professor was down in the bottom of the room, and we sat up on the sides above him, and he would read these long sections from the book of Ephesians, and then he would put his Bible down. As he did this, we began to realize that he was reading from a Greek New Testament, and he was just translating the whole thing on the fly. And I can remember being in that class and just feeling overwhelmed by the volume of information and trying to understand how does all of this work together. And so I walked down the hall uh, during a break and uh, I was in St. Paul, Minnesota in the winter, which is enough to cause doubts in itself. And as I walked down the hall and I looked out, the snow was just pouring from the sky and I saw this one tree where the snow was gathering in the crook. And as I saw that, I felt like God gave me this picture that some of what I was hearing would fall to the ground, but what I needed would, would catch in the crook of that tree and would provide 
nourishment. You know, it's not unusual to struggle to comprehend how it all works, but it's an invitation to a deeper journey, to explore God more deeply. I often have people ask me like simple questions about predestination and the end times and things like that. And I'm sure I'm frustrating because what I usually try to do is just help them frame their uh, questions and thoughts about it in a way that they can continue to explore that question more deeply. You know, you don't need a pastor to say, oh, I know the church has been arguing about this for a thousand years, but it's really pretty simple. It's A, B, and C, so it means C, so, you know, you just need to try harder and have more faith. That's not really going to help us grow. We grow when we dive deeper into our doubts and our questions. It's an invitation to grow in our faith. It's an invitation to go to Jesus with our questions. That's what John did. He took his questions to Jesus. And I think too often we stuff our questions out of fear that we'll be rejected by others, even by God. I mean, who wants to raise their hand in a room like this and say, yeah, I'm, I don't really, I've got my doubts about that. We would be concerned about being judged or shamed. Having doubts can be an isolating experience. However, throughout the Gospels, when people went to Jesus with their doubts, they were comforted and they were affirmed. When Jesus heard that John was questioning him, what was his response? Was it, well, I didn't think John would be such a coward, or I thought John would have more faith, or John just needs to work harder at this in that hot cell. No, he said, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus is saying no one has arisen greater than this man with his doubts. Doubts are not meant to be ignored. They are meant to lead us onto a deeper journey with God. As the psalmist said, search me God and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now while many of us have doubts that center around intellectual questions of how. Others of us have doubts that revolve around emotional questions of why. Why is this bad thing happening? Why did I get this diagnosis? Why did I lose this one that I love? Why did a natural disaster occur? The most familiar question at a time of tragedy is the question, why? It's a question that we ask to try to make sense of something that seems senseless. However, from my experience, it's not really a very helpful question. Because for one, one case, it's just, it's hard to answer. I don't think we ever fully reconcile why bad things happen. We see God work in and through them, and we see in retrospect how that happened but we never fully understand why. And even if we did, it still hurts. I have asked that question many times 
myself. In fact, I asked it just a few weeks ago. I was in India visiting with our partners there that we've worked with for over a decade. And we support uh, an aftercare home for girls that have been trafficked and an after-school program called Ashloy, which is in the largest red light district in Asia. And while there, I visited with kids like these that live in that nightmare. And it's hard to stand here in this room this morning and explain a place like that to you. Because you walk through those streets that are dark and evil at night, and it's, it's really like you're walking through the set of a horror movie. Its winding alleys are filled with suffering, and in the middle, there are these beautiful kids. And so it always makes me wonder why. The last time I was there was in February of 2020, just before COVID and early in the pandemic. Our friend Smita Singh, through your financial sport, was there uh, distributing food. One of the finest people I have ever known. This time I visit her here because like hundreds of thousands of people in India, she lost her life in the first wave of the pandemic. Why? Why is she gone and so much evil is still there? Every time I walk through those dark streets, I want Jesus to come with power and fire. But when I leave the darkness of those streets and I walk into Ashloy and I go upstairs and I hear those children singing and dancing, I see the truth that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And so I'm reminded that this is how this kingdom works. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, this kingdom does not come with power and fire. That will happen one day, but for now it comes bit by bit, breaking in and shining light even in the darkest places. So when you have questions of how and why, where do you go with them? When some of the critical characters in the Gospels had those questions, we remember Thomas, Nicodemus, they all took their questions to Jesus, and they grew closer to him through that experience. One of the buzzwords in the evangelical world right now is deconstruction. Deconstruction means dismantling a set of beliefs, people sort of playing a Jenga game with their faith. In some cases, it's brought on by questions of how or why. Sometimes it's the relentless pressure of our culture, or sometimes it's because of hypocrisy within the church. The idea of dismantling your beliefs is not new. If we think back on Jesus' Jesus' ministry, he did a little uh, deconstruction himself. We remember just a few weeks ago when he was in the Sermon on the Mount, he kept saying over and over, you have heard it said, but, and then he explained how the law really worked. 
What about Martin Luther when he nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg? He was deconstructing some things that were wrong with the church. And there are things wrong in the church today. I think if Jesus came back in 2023, his first words would probably be, you have heard it said, but. Because in so many ways, we have lost the plot. However, I need to be clear and say that deconstruction wrongly pursued can do tremendous harm. Over the years, I have had too many people that I know, too many people that I love go down this road and never really find their way back again. And as a pastor and a friend, it's a burden and a great disappointment. In most cases, it begins with an intellectual question or because they've been hurt by the church or some Christian celebrity and they're confused and they're angry and so the Jenga game begins. And when you go down that road, you really need to think about what, where you want to end up. I live in Sandy Springs and in my neighborhood, there are a lot of houses being bought and some of them are being remodeled and some of them are being tore down. I joke that I live in a teardown in Sandy Springs. And different developers have different objectives. Some of them just want to demo the whole thing, and some of them want to take that whole thing and remodel it into something beautiful. I think it's a good analogy for dealing with faith and doubt. Is your spiritual project a remodel, or is it a teardown? In your confusion and anger and frustration, do you just want to break it all up? Or do you want to use it and look at it and care for it and remove some things that may need to be removed and leave the best parts? So what is your motivation? In a remodel, you're motivated to know God. In a teardown, your motivation is to be your own God. Do you really want to know Jesus do you really want to follow him or do you just want to make a faith that you like and is popular with your friends? So many of the deconstruction projects today are really about making a religion that allows us to be popular in our culture. Remember Jesus' words, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Where do you take your questions? What do you do with them? Do you take your questions to Jesus or to social media? Do you follow the pattern of John the Baptist? Do you dig into scripture? Do you pray? Do you journal? Or do you go to Facebook and podcast and an expert on YouTube? If you're in a deconstruction project, are you in an authentic community or are you isolated? Now, I want to acknowledge that it can be difficult to find a community for this kind of journey because sometimes your friends really, they're uncomfortable with your questions. However, there are communities that will honor that process. You could join a spiritual cohort. You could go on a journey for nine months with other people around spiritual practices. You could be in an alpha group and ask hard questions. We could help you find a mentor. If you reach out, we can help you find 
a community. But whatever you do, don't try to deconstruct your faith on your own. That is a spiritually dangerous endeavor. And if you reach out to me, I will help you walk this journey where you're not in isolation. Dealing with doubts is hard and it's messy. It's sort of like living in a house while you're trying to remodel it. But it's a way that your faith can grow into something new and beautiful. You know, I'm sure John the Baptist wondered about how the kingdom of God worked. And I'm sure he wondered why he was in that cell. But those aren't really the questions that he asked. The question he asked is the critical question. Who? Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Not how does this all work or why am I here, but are you the one? And that is the critical question for everyone who has ever drawn a breath. Are you the one? Because if he is the one, the other questions and doubts can be worked out in a journey with him. And the truth is that we will never have faith without him. Because ultimately, faith is not something we conjure up. Faith is a gift of God. It's evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in our lives. And it's impossible to reconcile our doubts apart from Jesus. We don't need to overcome our doubts to follow him. We need to follow him to overcome our doubts. Learning to hear his voice because he is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the father but by him would you pray with me heavenly father we thank you that you do hear our voices you see us and you meet us in our struggles and our questions and our doubts and lord we know that you love us and you affirm us, and you will draw us nearer to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.